Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to the Mo Founders Podcast, a podcast that explores the issues that matter to business founders, investors, and emerging companies. My name is Stephen James, and I'm a partner at the law firm Morrison Forster, or MoFo, as we're widely known. Mo Founders was born out of a desire to bring together a community of entrepreneurs, investors, and advisors, and get insights into the challenges and opportunities that come with launching a business. One of the most important issues that entrepreneurs want to know about is how to make their business more investable to angels, VCs, and other types of investors. It can sometimes seem a bit of a mystery. Why does one business in a given sector skyrocket and become a unicorn, whereas another in the same sector struggles to take off? How do you put your business in the best possible position to secure investment? Well, to answer these questions and more, I'm delighted to welcome Mishana Steenbergen, an investor in B2B and B2C tech, and Stuart Alford, a partner in MoFo's corporate and emerging companies venture capital team. Mishana, Stuart, I'm delighted to welcome you to the podcast. If we take to the first theme of what I'd like to explore, it's all about how do you make yourself investable? So, Mishana, if I could perhaps start with you, what are the differences, to take it down to a basic level, between VC and other funding sources? So things like startup loans, private equity, angels, et cetera. Talk us through the differences between them, just so we've got that baseline. Absolutely. So just to start off with in BC, that's really almost like rocket for you. You want to build a business that's really innovative, really different, and you want it to, to scale fast or you want to fail fast. If it's not working and not making a massive change, then you don't want to go down a path that is not ultimately having that big impact. The downside of it is if you decide to go for VC money, you need to scale fast. You're very beholden to the investors and that can be difficult if you're not aligned. Some of the benefits and downsides of the other sources like private equity, you're also looking for like a large market, but often looking into more established businesses. They therefore don't need to scale as fast, but there might be a much more of an element of cash flow positivity involved. With angel investors, that can really range quite widely, all the way from being very hands-on to very hands-off. They usually can invest a lot quicker, and often they do want to add some strategic value as well. But sometimes it can be quite difficult to actually find them. And in startup loans, they do tend to be quite accessible, but they're not going to be there for the entire journey of your business. Often they are just not big enough to provide several millions to get you to that profitability point that you need to get to. And just how carefully do you need to think about actually whether you want to get investment in? Because other people I speak to are advisors who set up and run and had successful exits from their own business. Some of them say... Actually, you shouldn't be looking at investment, grow organically, focus on sales-driven growth. So how do you work out what's the right approach for you? Absolutely. It really depends on the kind of business that you want to build. So one of the benefits of VC is it's definitely a form of access to capital. So if you're building something that does require a lot of capital, for instance, in like food tech or med tech, before you even can go to the market, then that makes a massive difference. And you will probably need the sort of investor alongside the journey. 
VCs can also offer a lot of smart money. So in terms of like helping you get access to the next round, understanding internationalization from working out your strategy. And that's particularly important if you have them on the board and you're working together, etc. The benefit is you can test and, and learn quickly by having more capital in the business. You don't have to do everything on a shoestring budget and take a lot longer to get to the same point. And often in very competitive spaces and new technologies, for instance, like AI, you need to innovate really, really quickly to build out the competition. So if that's the sort of business that you're building, then VC can be a fantastic kind of partner. It can also add a lot of logo value to say somebody has done a lot of due diligence on your business. They think the tech is good. They think the team is good. And that can be a potential benefit to customers down the line. The downside is you do need to adapt quickly and grow into those valuations quickly as well. So you don't have a lot of time to play around with. You also do give up a lot of equity in the process for those kind of trade-offs. The downside is obviously if you can't grow your business fast enough and competitors are catching up a lot quicker, then you won't have a business. So you do need to give up that equity in some cases in order to raise makes a lot of sense and Stuart what do you find that say VCs are looking to see when it comes to investment as compared to say an angel or a different type of investor and obviously I'm talking more from your perspective the legal side of things what do you tend to see in terms of differences in approach in terms of what they're looking for and what they're after so I think in many ways this is about the different stages of venture capital and the different stages of private capital to some degree and, and you mentioned you know angel investors And I think a lot of listeners will have heard or or be familiar with the term pre-seed or seed financing. And this is super early. So the company is still working on its business concept. Perhaps it's working on firming up its IP, getting its business running. And so the folks who tend to be investing at such an early stage, maybe founders, family and friends, or angel investors. And so they know that they're coming in very, very early. There may not be much there other than a concept. And so when you look a little bit further down the journey, perhaps the business is more established, might be revenue generating, doing some more marketing, looking into new markets. Then you're at your Series A territory where your larger angels, but also your venture capitalists tend to land on the scene. Perhaps you're doing a price funding round and very often they're taking preferred shares and and getting some superior rights and protections. But because you're looking at a slightly later stage now, what VCs are really looking for and have perhaps the ability to see over and above angel investors is those core building blocks. And so I think on the legal side, we're very involved in due diligence, essentially making sure there isn't this mismatch between what's been reported to the investor in discussions and actually the startup's true legal standing. And obviously there's a need for everyone to be efficient and to keep costs down on all sides. So what we tend to do is focus on a few areas. And I think that's understanding and verifying the cap table, alignment with the company books, the records and filings, looking at the template commercial contracts, do they protect the company? Are the employment and consultancy agreements adequate? Is IP that's created sitting with the company? Is it complying with laws, perhaps if it's regulated or in a data intensive industry? And are there any sort of actual or or potential disputes that are out there that could give rise to liabilities? And so I think if startups can ensure that these kind of building blocks are in decent shape, or at least they're readily fixable with guidance from the investor, then that business plan can take precedence. and, And therefore, you should be able to close 
the round off the back of the initial promise or potential that you showed to that VC? That's great. Thank you, Stuart. And Mishana, from your perspective as an investor, what are you really looking to see? What are the things that make you excited or give you a lot of comfort when you're looking at potential prospects? And how, as a startup or an an entrepreneur, do you make your business more investable? What sorts of things should you be doing from the off? So we'll start with the first part of that question. So broadly speaking, all VCs look for the same kind of opportunities at a high level. You're looking for a large market and the business that you're looking at can take a fair chunk of that market. Then it's absolutely got to be the right team that be like relevant experience, just a general passion and drive to do it. And overall, just being on top of the business. Then VCs want to see innovation, be that around like, is this a truly new way of thinking about a market, a product, a technology, or is there something else about it? Like, do people bring new experiences to the business? Then scalability, super important. So it doesn't matter if the market is large, if you can't grow into that market really easily or or relatively rapidly. And the last part is fit to the fund. And I think that often gets underestimated that people don't truly understand what does this fund do if a fund is focused on pre-seed versus series A is generalist versus a specialist in AI. That will be an automatic yes or no to even taking a call with the business when they see the pitch deck. If it's fully out of scope, there's no point in taking a call. Could be the best business ever, but if you can't invest, then there's no point in continuing that. So in terms of how to make yourself more investable is starting off with understanding what these different VCs do uh, and what they'd be looking for at your kind of level as well. generally involves like building relationships over time, really understanding what they're looking for. This also applies to angels. So some angels are interested in, in doing fairly quick investments, but some angels also want to build the relationship and don't even care so much about the numbers at the early days. Beyond that, it's also having a data room ready, really being on top of your business and understanding like how you're going to go about getting your product ready and in front of customers and being able to explain that really succinctly, even if it does pivot a lot over time and the expectation is even slightly later down the road, it will still pivot and change a little bit. But just having a good understanding of what the current roadmap looks like is really important as part of that investment readiness. And just generally, it takes time. So if you're going to a VC and expect to have money in a bank account within two weeks, that's just not going to happen. So be prepared that it does take a longer period of time to build those connections, get the right data ready. So Michelle, yeah, the relationship building point is really interesting because I think as lawyers, we perhaps tend to see a little bit less of this negotiation of the term sheet, the definitive agreements, the due diligence, but we come in a little bit later very often. And we don't see this process whereby a company and investor realize that they have a match. What's the typical timeline? I guess it varies, but from that first meeting, the first conversation through to closing of a round. I would say it can absolutely vary massively. So there is definitely cases where VCs are able to deploy relatively quickly, you know, in particular at the early stages or where they're there is follow-on commitment, et cetera. And the terms are already said that can be relatively straightforward and it can be anywhere from a few phone calls and maybe an in-person meeting uh, to getting the money in your bank account within uh, a few weeks to a few months to a much longer stretch. So I definitely know there's a bunch of other VCs that are focused on seed, Series A, sometimes Series B, 
that like to build the relationship over a year or two or longer or however long it takes before the business even gets to that stage. And one of the benefits of doing that is that as an investor, it's like, hey, you already know the person, how they've been thinking, you know, the kind of challenges they face and how you interact with that. And then you can understand them as like, okay, do I know how this is going to go forward? If you just see the numbers fresh, then obviously, yes, the founders can tell you the story and see how things have been going over time. But that's not the same as being like, okay, I understand what happened there. I understand what happened there. And I understand why you've had to pivot and what you've tried and what doesn't work. Having said that, there are also some investors that are more focused on making a lot of quick investments and are therefore like less focused on building the relationships over time. And you definitely do see that in the pre-seed seed stage quite regularly as well. And there are also plenty of founders who prefer to build in stealth, not go out to market just yet and not spend a lot of their time speaking to investors when they could be speaking to potential customers. So you definitely see that as well, definitely within the, the kind of network that I have and the discussions I have. I do see that there is a, a bit more of a preference for building the relationships over a long time, but that doesn't necessarily stop people from raising investment. And just on that, do you think that there's a danger sometimes for founders to spend so much time trying to handle the investment side that they sometimes take their eye off the ball in terms of actually focusing on the actual day-to-day running of the business, developing the customer base, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. And generally fundraising, particularly if that's what you're doing as a founder or as a CEO, particularly if you're a solo founder or CEO, It can just take up three to six months of your life effectively while you're speaking to all the investors, angels, hashing out the legal side of things, which can take even more time than just doing the due diligence by itself as well. So I definitely think it is a massive distraction. So you should be really careful in thinking about how you're going to plan it out and how you're still going to grow the business in the meantime. Because if you're talking to an investor for like three months, six months, and you're not growing the business in the meantime... They will also say, hey, why are you not growing the business in the, in the meantime? So it is a bit of a chicken and egg question. And that's one of the reasons why it's sometimes quite useful to keep in touch with investors, be that sometimes like a regular coffee catch up after you've spoken to them or sending them a regular investor newsletter and keeping them up to date and finding out what works best for them and keeping them in the loop of your business. So you're not doing all the raising all at once and building the relationships while trying to grow your business all at the same time. And you're effectively spreading it out a bit more. Obviously, like to grow your business, you do need some sort of capital. It's one thing to have the capital yourself. And a lot of people don't have it. And also quite keen to make sure as an investor, I don't want to just fund people who do already have money in the bank account. So there's other opportunities to think about what can give you a bit of that cash in order to build a business, be that around grants, be that residencies, for instance. And that's quite exciting over the past decade or so. We have seen opportunities pop up there. You're talking now about founders being pulled in all sorts of different directions, so many pressures on their time. So are there two or three things that you think that they should make absolute priorities before that first venture capital? raise what the two or three things they just simply have to do it really depends on the stage that you are at so one thing is you need to have the right kind of traction for your type of business at the stage and that's really quite different to put a finger on because traction for a consumer business at pre-seed or, or series a will look very different than traction for a deep tech business which is generally going to take a lot longer to get to market and get to profitability if it ever does 
So definitely have an understanding at least of what the kind of like metrics for the right stage might be and then build towards that, be that through doing the initial raise and raising from fans and family, from angels, from grants, et cetera, and whatever opportunities are out there. I do think a really important point that sometimes gets neglected by founders, particularly when they start doing their pre-seed, is to make sure you have the right kind of network around you. So be that the right kind of people who can give you advice for your business, be that your lawyers, be that people working in regulation, people working in the industry that can help you chat through the strategy, the pitfalls, the potential risks and opportunities opportunities as well. So build those connections early. Ultimately, as the founder, you're responsible for making those decisions. But it is really important that you have people around you who you can go to for advice and play that off. Well, I'm delighted that you mentioned lawyers as being some of the key people that you go to. And on that note, Stuart, I imagine that you've seen plenty of term sheets, shareholders agreements and other corporate constitutional documents. What makes a good term sheet? What makes a good shareholders agreement? And why are these things so important to a business? I think the key really from the investor is that they want to ensure that they have adequate oversight over the business. And from a company perspective, they want to ensure that the negotiations are as efficient as possible. So the question is, why are term sheets important? I think while it can feel like a waste of time or energy to negotiate a short form document that ultimately won't form part of the definitive legal agreements and will get put in a drawer, uncertainty as you progress from that term sheet phase through to longer form documents, which could be, say, over 100 pages, can result in protracted negotiations, inefficiencies, greater legal costs, and so forth. While it's tempting at that early stage to say customary warranties will be given or customary minority protections will be provided, the question is that the founder's view as to liability for those warranties the same as the investors. Should the minority shareholders have a veto over the budget or over future equity raises? These are big points, and you want to get clear on that at an early stage to make sure there's compatibility, and that keeps things much more efficient, allows investments to close faster and for founders to get on and run the business. And so that's the purpose of your term sheet. Resolve the key points at the outset and take time to to iron them out and that will pay dividends later. As far as the longer form documents go, I know Stephen, you mentioned shareholders agreement and articles. I think when we're looking at a company, generally we're focused on the plumbing to some extent in order to make the implementation of the round work to make sure that we've got the necessary consent. But certainly as you get to series A and then you go through the rounds, those documents tend to be revised at each stage of the funding. And so they tend to be driven by that lead investor at each point in time and are generally amended or refreshed. And again, that's a key role of the legal advisor. The message seems to be partly about front loading things, making sure that you've given it the terms proper thought and consideration and planning. Is there a message in there about trying to keep things as simple and straightforward as you can? Do you find that that's generally more effective or does it depend on the sector, the business? How do you see that and how would you be steering startups to make sure that they, they're structuring things in the right way? I'd be interested in Michelle's view on this. I mean, I think on the legal side, it really depends on where a business is at in its journey. I mean, we're talking about early stage companies, but there's quite a big difference between a company pre-seed or seed versus series A to B, as we talked about earlier in the podcast. But I think one thing that is important is thinking around the tools that are available to you. And again, we started off talking about the various different 
types of private capital that might be available, whether that's a loan, whether that's equity. And I think particularly at a very early stage, it's important to keep things as straightforward as possible. And from an investor's perspective, they may find that however hard they look at a business, however much they think about it, actually, it's very hard to price something that's, that's that young. And so can we use avenues like advanced subscription agreements or convertible loans at a very early stage that enable pricing to be pushed down the road, give investors some upside, and perhaps can minimize some of the churn that you can get from more involved rounds at a slightly later stage. Michelle, what do you think on the more commercial side? So I generally think even by getting to the term sheet, being super and open and honest about it, I think I've definitely seen and heard uh, deals falling through from both sides, quite frankly, on the startup side, because they were not super open and honest about how far along they were with uh, the pipeline of customers, for instance, or how confirmed the IP and stuff like that was. So that ultimately has an impact on the valuation. And then you end up in a long, long drawn out discussion after the term sheet to really figure out what's where. So I think like an honesty on that side, I think also on the investors, I've definitely seen investors trying to squeeze in extra rights last minute. And that does get a lot of pushback from startups. So generally helps to have those kind of discussions up front on both sides, to be honest. And that keeps it also quite simple because then you're not having a long and complicated back and forth. That makes sense. And if we look to the landscape as it currently is, how hard is it, Mishana, to raise VC money in the current environment? Do you think things have deteriorated? Has it become much more difficult? Does it depend on the sector, the business, the proposition? How do you see it? Absolutely. So I definitely think it depends on both the type of business and the sector that you're in. I think there's still a lot of commitment for AI, for healthcare as well, quite popular still. But overall, funding volumes and values are down even compared to Q3 last year. So overall, it's still looking relatively bleak. And I also don't expect it to magically pick up now. I know a lot of startups and a lot of investors have been saying that, oh, yeah, September, October is the magical month to start raising. And I do also hear a lot of startups that are now waiting until next year now. So it's getting down the road effectively. At some point, you will get more businesses that have to come to market. They may have done an internal round over the past year and a half that will have to raise capital externally just because their internal investors can no longer support them in doing the next rounds. So I would expect businesses that are doing quite well to come to market. So that's definitely been an element of the slowdown. VCs are definitely still deploying at the pre-seed and, and the seed and series A stage. I would say the later valuations have definitely also come down over time. And I think there is much more of a push now in portfolio companies as well that we're seeing as an earlier push towards profitability. So you don't need to do your series A to series Z effectively. Overall valuations definitely down compared to 2021. And I don't expect them to drastically increase over time either. I think there's a lot of people who've learned a lot of lessons there both on the investor and on the founder side of those valuations just weren't sustainable. Venture investors are still looking for opportunities to deploy and particularly around strong teams that have proven the ability to execute. Does that resonate with you, Stuart, in terms of your practice and what you're seeing? And I also wondered as an additional area to explore what you've noticed 
that's different from a legal perspective in terms of raising investment in, say, 2021 as against the current landscape? Are there any material legal differences that founders, startups should be aware of as well? Generally, I would echo Mishana's perspective because ultimately the commercial environment very much feeds through the legal environment and whether we're working with companies or with investors, we're trying to assist them in reflecting or addressing the concerns that they have. And certainly I feel that the euphoria perhaps has been replaced with a certain caution in the market today. And on the legal side, that's probably manifested itself in a couple of ways. And perhaps first in the approach to due diligence, and then secondly, in some of the terms that we're seeing in the market. And I certainly had conversations with investors who said that 2021 was a a difficult time and not so much because valuations were rising, but because it was difficult to get your term sheet in front of your target audience. And Mishana suggested, I think earlier, that in the race to get deals done, due diligence was light. And that was even in slightly later stage funding rounds when businesses are more established, when there's more to look at, but also when checks can be really quite large. And there are examples of investors being hurt by this. And I think legal advisors are spending a bit more time focusing on the red flags that might crop up in due diligence and ensuring that investors have adequate protections. My second point on market terms, it's really things like ensuring that board representation is proportionate, that information rights are in place, that vetoes are appropriate. And in terms of related change, I think as of early 2023, we also saw a new set of standard documents released by the British Venture Capital Association, and that tends to guide investment terms. But actually, interestingly, with those documents coming out in early 2023, I think in many ways they were crafted in more startup-friendly times, perhaps. And so we do see investors making adjustments to the terms in order to seek greater protection. So that might be something like going back to a more traditional position, like asking founders at a very early stage to give warranties to ensure they're giving adequate focus to disclosures. And unfortunately, Some companies are coming out of an easy Series A or Series B round into this difficult climate, finding fundraising more challenging and ending up in a distressed situation. And those timelines can be quite short from one raise to the next. And the life of an emerging company can be quite turbulent. You know, the narrative and the balance of power can shift quite quickly between a company and an investor. And that's something a few investors have seen in recent months. That said, I like to be optimistic, and I think we're all cognizant of some incredibly troubling times geopolitically. I think we will come out the other side of this. Valuations have reset and interest rates are reaching their peak, and I think the investment environment will turn. But of course, the key question is when. Michelle, do you share a sort of small degree of optimism? It's been relatively bleak, I think, as a, a podcast so far. Because obviously, there are challenges, things are shifting. It seems to be much harder. How do you see the future investment landscape developing? Is there room for optimism or is it very much a wait and see and you're really going to have to do everything you can to stand out from the crowd? Absolutely. I think there is an element of optimism. There's always cycles and VC has been around for a decent amount of time now and has weathered several bubbles and bursts effectively of investment as well. So we do see the ebbs and flows of an investment and Generally speaking, it will go up at some point. The question is like, how long is it going to take to get there? I think in the near future, it is important to be cognizant of the crazy valuations that we may have experienced over the past two, three years. They're unlikely to come back anytime soon. I think a lot of people are just realizing that 
the businesses are not growing into those valuations and investors are not getting their investment returns based on it. So it's like lose-lose on both sides as well. And at the moment, it does take longer. So hopefully at some point in the future, there will be an element of it can go a bit quicker. There is also an education element there for founders, at least, that they do take that longer perspective towards raising as well. The one thing I would be cautious about, at least for the next few years for people raising, is that VCs themselves are not raising as much capital. Certainly at the moment, a lot of even established VCs are struggling to raise So to suggest, for instance, that 2024 will be shiny and optimistic, I would certainly not go as far. But at some point, it will turn back around again and it will be a bit easier to get capital. There is also an element to be said in difficult times. A lot of great businesses are born that are really reinventing the model. So it is also an opportunity to think about how do you create a much more profitable, longer term vision for a business that isn't necessarily relying on hundreds of millions of investment and going out to market every nine to 12 months in order to sustain the business. You mentioned earlier about AI as being one of those sort of growth areas, and it seems to still have quite a steep trajectory. Is that how you see it? And obviously, AI captures so many different things. Were you surprised at how much of it's caught fire? Do we expect that to continue? Do you expect that there to be a bit more maturity? How do you see that sector going in particular over the next, say, 12 to 18 months? Overall, I'm not super surprised. The whole job of a VC is to back the next technology and the next form of innovation and whatever technology effectively gets you there. And it's worthwhile noting that there's definitely been some more specialist VCs that have been backing the AI. AI horse for quite a long time. And it's only over the last year or two that we've now seen a much more adaptation of the mainstream VC investor going into the space. And in part, I would say that's driven by both through ChatGPT, for instance, or DALI. It it is businesses and consumers themselves now understanding what AI is, what they can use it for. So all of a sudden you have a market for it. Before that, I think there was a fair amount of hesitation of like, oh, is this just investors selling and speaking to investors? But broadly speaking, yeah, there's always trends in VC, whether it is crypto, it's metaverse, and now AI. What I do think is like AI has a lot of applications still to go after and develop. And I think ultimately there is a lot of readiness for it. So I would definitely assume there will be a fair amount of optimism towards AI. I do think there is an element in the market of not all AI is created equal. And investors and founders should be really careful about what they're actually building and whether it's ultimately the right kind of business. And my advice would be to build the business and the best business that you can build within the space. And if AI help improve outcomes effectively for the customer, then it's great. Go for it. And if it doesn't, then don't spend a lot of time and money to justify AI in your pitch deck to investors because it ultimately not every business needs to be AI. Indeed. And just to wrap up as a final question from me, which really captures everything that both you and Michelle and Stuart have been talking about on the podcast, is that given the environment where it seems to be that there's a bit of a ray of light, a bit of room for optimism, but also real material challenges, it's a difficult environment. What should startups, founders be doing now to put them in the best possible position to secure investment? Perhaps, Stuart, if I start with you and then we'll move to Mishana to, to get her perspective on it as well. Yeah, sure. I think Mishana's take on focusing on building the best business that you can and looking through some of the noise is a great message. And in many ways, the question should be a little more 
short term. A lot can happen in a few years. Think of companies in the AI space that we might not have heard of a couple of years ago that are now looking at valuations in the tens of billions. When you're pursuing a growth strategy, a high growth strategy, and cash burn can be high, it is about careful budgeting. It's about really thinking about your projections, executing on the business plan, demonstrating a trajectory that makes you investable on a relatively short-term cycle. And so I don't think I'd change those building blocks, but Michelle, how do you think about things going forward? I definitely agree. Focusing on building the right business at the right time and being really clear about what the next steps are, as well as having a view of what the long-term picture is going to be. And that long-term picture will always be changing, but just being really cognizant of these are the next steps we need to do in order to get to there. If that doesn't work out, how do we get to there? Is that still the right goal? Do we need to rethink about that? I generally think it's worthwhile both thinking like having the short-term perspective and the adaptability of executing right now, getting money into the business right now, and then thinking longer term as well. Of It's great that you may be raising 500K, you may be raising 5 million, you may be raising 50 million, but what's the next step after that? And really thinking that through of, do we want to focus on getting to profitability? Do we want to IPO at some point? Just having those short and long-term ideas and having them online is super important as well. Thank you, Mishana. Thank you, Stuart, for an absolutely fascinating discussion. I got a lot out of it. I'm sure our listeners did as well. Just a reminder for you to please look out for further Mo Founders podcasts and events coming your way in the very near future. Thank you so much. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.